All right, well, we'll go ahead and get started. I'll start us off in uh, prayer. Father God, we just thank you for this time together as your people. We just pray that we would have a proper understanding of your word, that we would reflect on it, meditate it, and that you would enrich our lives by it, Lord. We just thank you, Lord, and we just take great joy in being able to gather together, Lord. Help us, Lord, increase our knowledge of you, increase our love for one another. In these things we ask in Christ's name, amen. Well, last week what we looked at is a couple different myths. The myth of neutrality, uh, the myth of natural theology, and then we looked at two different types of revelation. That being general revelation, that which you can see, hear, uh, observe, and then we looked at special revelation, that which Christ himself would need to reveal to you. Uh, And then this week, we're going to be looking at three different areas or subjects. The first one being is epistemology, and that essentially is the doctrine of knowledge, how we can know things, can we know things with certainty. And then we're also going to be looking at the doctrine of of sin. We're going to be looking at specifically uh, total depravity. We're going to see how sin progresses and becomes even hardened. And then we're also going to be looking at prayer because I think all these things factor in to the task of apologetics when we're talking to an unbeliever. Now, now before we start, though, uh, I want to draw your attention to our church's website, and that's Heritage Grace Community Church. And on there, on... Um, I think it's on the blogs. You can go and there's a post and it's talk, it talks about, I think it's Dr. Kruger, he talks about confidence in the canon of Scripture. Can we have confidence in the canon of Scripture and the reliability of the Bible? So I would definitely recommend that. There's about 10 different uh, hyperlinks you can listen to. And as a Christian, I think that will greatly help bolster our faith in the canon of Scripture when we're delivering the truth of the scriptures to the unbeliever. Uh, not only that, but I actually picked up this little booklet um, from Family Christian Bookstore. I picked it up about 13 years ago. Um, and really just, in it, I hope it's still available, but if not, you can still get something very similar to it. Uh, it's probably $5. just talks about the reliability of the Bible. Um, and I would greatly encourage you to do stuff like that. Do you know, as much research as you can on the canon of Scripture. How did the Bible come into being? What books do we, you know, go by and so forth? And so I greatly encourage you. Uh, and anyone, you're welcome to borrow this. You can just ask me after class, I'll give it to you. Um, and so because what we're going to be looking at, epistemology deals with the knowledge claims of the Bible. And so I'll start us off with epistemology. What is truth? Pilate asked this very question to Jesus before he condemned the sinless Savior to death by crucifixion. You can read of this in John 18, 38. And he asked Jesus, what is truth? Pilate asked this question with sarcasm, and yet it is one of the most profound questions ever uttered. Epistemology, the doctrine of knowledge, is the discipline that deals with the theory of knowledge. What is the study, or it is the study of how we know truth, reality, and all the related implications of obtaining knowledge. As an example, can we know truth with certainty? What is a standard or authority of truth? Where does truth come from? Is truth universal? Does it change? Is it objective or subject? Is it based on opinion or fact? How does anyone know that they ever know anything at all? These types of questions are answered under the umbrella of the discipline of epistemology, the doctrine of knowledge. Example, Mormons say they know the truth. Muslims say they know the Quran is true. Richard Dawkins claimed that evolution was true. Christians claim the Bible is true. So how do we determine what is true and what we know? Where you land in terms of your view about knowledge and truth regarding ultimate realities will determine our theology, our philosophy, and our methodology about the task of apologetics, how we go about 
defending the Christian faith to unbelievers. And because I believe in what is called biblical apologetics, getting my defense of the truth from the claims of Scripture, the Christian apologist must begin apologetics with the presupposed existence of the triune God of the Bible. The Christian apologist must assume from the start the presupposed truth of the self-authenticating scriptures, and yet these two claims drive most people crazy. Most people, even within traditional apologetics, do not start there. We start typically within empirical evidence, that which you can observe, see, feel, or they do so based on the idea of being able to reason people into the faith. Um, And so now, uh, one who is very involved in apologetics was Van Til. And Van Til summarizes his apologetic epistemology this way. The central concern of a truly biblical apologetic method is to show that without presupposing the Christian worldview, all of man's reasoning, his experience, his interpretation, etc. is unintelligible. Only the transcendent revelation of God can provide necessary preconditions for logic, science, morality, in which case those who oppose the faith are reduced to utter foolishness and intellectually have nowhere to go. And so in standing against objecting to Christianity's truth claims. Now John Warwick Montgomery says, speaking to Van Til sarcastically, he says that referring to Van Til's epistemology, he calls it a tiered two, two-tiered fairy tale after the lights of Alice in Wonderland. And he also is engaged in apologetics. He just does not like the fact that someone like Van Til starts his authority with the Bible. And so this being, this being said, I want to draw your attention to kind of what I've been going over in the last couple of weeks. And that's still three deficiencies in the typical traditional role used in apologetics. First of all, they do not include God or the Bible in their definition of truth. Their textbook definition of truth, therefore, is theologically sterile and actually is more atheistic. It is without God and his authority in his word. They believe that their definition of of truth is neutral, assuming it will be accepted by believers and unbelievers alike, and yet unbelievers have darkened minds. And we find this in Romans 121. And if you would, turn with me to Ephesians 4.18. Ephesians 4.18. Because this is speaking of the one who is an unbeliever. And this is what we're talking about so heavily on knowledge claims of truth. And so when we're getting into that task, we need to know ahead of time their position. Okay, so Ephesians 4.18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, this ignorance, notice this next text, it says, due to their hardness of their heart. This ignorance that they have is not a simple ignorance of not knowing if God exists or not. No, in Romans 1, it tells us they suppress that which is already given to them. And so here it says, due to their hardness of their heart. So in addition to this, satanic blindness also doubly skews the knowledge of unbelievers. We find this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. And the third point is they fail to make a distinction between heavenly spiritual truth and earthly truth. And this is evident for us in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 6 through 8. And this explains why a pagan can be a brilliant in math and yet at the same time have a darkened mind about spiritual matters. If you would turn with me to Matthew 13. We're going to be reading Matthew 13 verses 10 through 17. Because again, I think this highlights the condition of an unbeliever. Matthew 13, verses 10 through 17. Then the disciples came and said to him, 
Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance from him, the one who has not. Even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so the text here demonstrates that spiritual knowledge is not just a matter of intellect, how smart someone is, the measure of their IQ. No, it is essentially because they are suppressing the very truth given to them. And so now I want us to look at a biblical definition of truth. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as defined and determined by God. The triune God of the universe defines truth. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. We find that in John 16, 13. Jesus is the incarnation of truth as he declared, I am the truth. We find that in John 14, 6. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. John 18, 36. And then continuing, the word is truth. John 17, 17. And thy law is truth. Psalms 119, verse 142. And so you have, again, continuing in the traditional apologetics, you have someone like Norman Geisler stating, Logic is prior to God in the order of knowing. Yet the Bible states God is prior to everything. He is before all things. We discover that in Colossians 1, 17 says, he is the first and the last, Isaiah 44, verse 6. In thy light we see light, Psalms 36, 9. So the laws of logic are subject to him. He is sovereign over all things. So, and we find that in Psalms 115, verse 3. So in summary, the question of epistemology, the question of the doctrine of knowledge, is meaningless apart from Christ, because for in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you find that in Colossians 2, verse 3. So if you want to know about knowledge, you start with Christ who reveals knowledge. Okay. So what role did the scripture have in the life of Jesus? And I would say, if you want a supreme example of the one who did apologetics perfectly is Christ. So look to him. And so he quoted from scripture. He argued from scripture. He taught from scripture. He chided his opponents for not reading or understanding it. And he repeated 30 times, it is written. And so this was second nature to his teaching. He was the master apologist. And so... My question for you is, do you want to see someone set free when you're engaged in the task of apologetics? Because I believe when we go out, that should be our, that should be our objective, seeing people set free, not just you know, seeing how smart we are, trying to project you know, how much knowledge we have about the Bible. No, we want to see them set free. So how do we do this? If you would turn to me, turn with me in John 8... John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. John 8, verses 31 and 32. 
So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So to me, that's exciting news, that you can see someone set free by the truth claims of Scripture. And so... Now I want to talk about, now that we've kind of looked at the doctrine of knowledge, epistemology, I also want to look at what is called the doctrine of sin. How does someone's sinfulness, inherent sinfulness, relate to the apologetic task? Because I believe this is very important. And so we're going to look at some different factors in the doctrine of sin. Why do critics of Christianity reject the Bible and the faith? Why won't they believe? Some have suggested is that perhaps if they had more information, more miracles, tighter logical argument, perhaps more archaeological discoveries, and the list goes on. These these suggestions have one thing in common. It is assumed that the greatest roadblock to preventing a non-Christian from believing is simply ignorance. And this, however, does not reflect reality. As we learned earlier in the scriptures, it's really due to the hardness of their heart. The Bible gives really two reasons, personal sinfulness and satanic blindness. Unbelievers are opposed to the gospel. And without a work of God, they simply will not accept its truth. God is the one who defines sin. And a systematic summary of sin as given by God in Scripture, is really any thought, deed, or word that violates God's will or character. As John is 1 John 3, 4, aptly summarizes, sin is lawlessness. It is evil. We find that in Proverbs 8, 13. It is wickedness, Genesis 6, 5. It is corruption, Genesis 6, 12. It is called iniquity in Psalms 51, verse 2. And so it is also called a transgression, Psalms 32, 1 and 5. It is called disobedience in Ephesians 2, verse 2. And so beginning with the first man, Adam, sin has separated humankind from God who is holy, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. So as a result, every human needs to be reconciled to God. The Apostle Paul states that sin entered the world through Adam. You find that in Romans 5, verses 12 through 14. And so, continuing to look at the doctrine of sin, I want to look at three truths that are relevant to the apologetic task. The first one, as I mentioned, is inherent sin, often called original sin. Inherent sin is the original corruption and disposition to sin that all people inherit through Adam, through natural generation, and have from conception throughout their earthly lives. Again, some scriptures to confirm that. Psalms 51.5, Matthew 7.11, Romans 5.19. And so every person ever born inherits a sin nature at conception. David, speaking as a prophet of God, explained this truth in saying, in sin, my mother conceived me, Psalms 51.5. Psalms 58.3 says, from the NIV, Even from birth, the wicked go astray. From the womb, they are wayward and speak lies. And only Christ bypassed the curse of original sin by being born of a virgin. We find that in Luke 1.35. And because of original sin inherited from Adam, Romans 5.18, All people are born sinners. Now, again, thinking about what I was talking about, epistemology, doctrine of sin, I'm making that claim. That's a knowledge claim. And so if I can't stand on the authority of God's word, I can't even make that claim that all people are born sinners, Romans 3.23, and are by nature children of wrath. We find that in Ephesians 2.3. And they are separated from God, Ephesians 2.12. And they are called his avowed enemy. You will find that in Romans 5.10. And they need to be born again. John 3.3. Four verses later, it's repeated again. John 3.7. And so by nature, before redemption, by belief in the gospel, all people are spiritually 
dead in their transgressions. Ephesians 2.5. So original sin separates all people from God. And so this brings us to our second point, and that is going into kind of how deep this penetrates people. And that's uh, talking about total depravity. Because every person is born with a sin nature, they are in turn totally depraved from birth. And I know this is not a very popular teaching at all, but nonetheless, I think we need to be made aware of it in speaking in the apologetic tax to unbelievers. Because if we're not aware of their condition, then that's going to really have a, I think, a bad impact on how we do apologetics for the glory of God. And so, uh, before I state it, I want to say what a total depravity is not. Total depravity was not invented by John Calvin. Total depravity does (laughs) does not mean that all people are as bad as they can be. That would be kind of under the heading of, you might, R.C. Sproul mentioned, utter depravity, being totally as bad as you can be. Well, by God's restraining grace, even on the unbeliever, they are not as bad as they could be. And yet they are still totally depraved in their nature. Okay, I would say that Christians are not totally depraved. They've been given a new nature. That is not to suggest that we don't struggle against our flesh. We do. It's a constant spiritual warfare. And so total depravity does not mean that people cannot do anything good. Now, again, that might be a controversial subject, which we went back on last uh, Sunday. And, and I'm talking about just the task itself, not even the motive. Okay? So it does not eradicate the imago Dei. The imago Dei simply means being made in the image of God. So what is total depravity? Holloman states, total depravity means that people are so corrupted by sin that of themselves they can do nothing good or right to gain saving merit in their relationship to God. Every part of his being has been affected by sin. And there are countless verses that speak to total depravity. The first one we read going all the way back to Genesis. Uh, If you read, let's look at Genesis 6, verse 5. Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And even though this is a very short verse, I believe it is very impactful. For the verse highlights six implications. You find the first one, all, says on the earth. And I believe this includes everyone. And second point, their actions. It says, it calls the actions wickedness. And three, it speaks to the motive. It says every intent. And then four, the inner nature speaks to his heart was evil. And then five, it goes to the extent of this. It says only evil. And then the point six is it talks about the permanence of it. It says continually. And I would say this is at least until man is regenerated. And so speaking of total depravity, Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately six. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says... The hearts of the children of man are full of evil. So apart from God's supernatural intervention, through a work of his grace, natural man is beyond cure. So as a result of this depravity, people are always learning and yet never able to come to the knowledge of truth. And we find that in 2 Timothy 3.7. And so the truth of the unbeliever is found in Psalms 14, verses 1 through 3. Any volunteers to read that? Psalm 14, 1 through 3. I'll go ahead and read it. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, 
who seek after God, and they have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not even one. And so again, this is speaking about the heart of the unbeliever before he is uh, generated by God. Yes, go ahead, Carlos. As you read that, I'm picturing an entire race of people, from the eldest to the youngest. Is that correct? Are you speaking, well, when you say race, I'm I'm thinking when you say that, I'm thinking human race. (laughs) Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and, and I would agree. Yeah, and I think that speaks to not only past tense, because we know it's past psalms. I think it also speaks to the present tense and future tense of those who have not even been born yet. But again, we're going, I'll look at all these other verses. They are going to be born with uh, inherent original sin. Go ahead. Well, what's great is that's how Paul uses the, that same text in Romans chapter 3 when he's summarizing the depravity of all mankind, whether Gentile or Jew. And in chapter 3, he says, there's none good, there's none not one. There's none who seeks after God. Right. Yeah. That's, that's how he summarizes it. Yeah, yeah. when you're reading that from Genesis, uh, I remember when I was, I don't know, 7, and uh, the, the story of Noah's blood and mm-hmm. the reasons behind it just hit home. No, I, sure. I was told the truth. It wasn't just about animals. Right. And why did God do that? And then I found myself, like in awe of uh, God's grace, Sure. That you know, I, I wouldn't even be sitting here thinking about it, you know, at that moment. And then, uh, you know, now explaining that, that to certain people, they're like, well, why did why did God do that? Even even kill kids, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of God is that? And then, you know, just like we just read just now, it, it's it's everybody. Yeah, and I think this speaks to again going back to the apologetic task, why we need to be so. Uh, you might say gentle, even gracious with those who have not embraced the faith because we were j- exactly in that position. Mm-hmm. And I think even even worse, I know at least in my own example, I had certain truths revealed from Scripture and still, you know, and so I was even more, you know, I had it revealed and still was in just deep sin. And so in looking that, I also kind of want to look at what the third point, and that is the progression of sin. So Romans... Romans 1 teaches us that sinners who resist God go from bad to worse in the progress of their depravity. His heart becomes more hardened. We see that in Hebrews 3.13. His neck becomes even more stiffened, Proverbs 29.1. His conscience becomes even more seared, 1 Timothy 4.2. And so this is the progression of the hardening effects of sin, deceiving and being deceived, 2 Timothy 3.13. And so this progressive spiral of sin is described by Paul as a giving over to judgment by God as a natural consequence of the sinner's choice to reject truth. You are not dealing with an innocent seeker. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We see this in Psalms 36.1 and Romans 3.18. For a hardened heart to be softened, it takes a sovereign work of God. Uh, We're not going to look at the text, but I just want to point it out in Ezekiel 36, verses verses 25 through 27. We find five I will statements in regards to salvation being by his initiative. What an unbeliever needs is more spirit-empowered biblical truth. When Paul spoke biblical truth of the gospel to Lydia, again, we saw this last week, the byproduct was that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. We see this in Acts 16, verse 14. So how would you like to be spoken of when declaring the truth of someone? How do you know you're doing apologetics well? Again, I'm going to say start with the scriptures. Trust God in his saving work using the scriptures to open hard hearts. Our struggle in the apologetics, and we learned this last week from Emilio, is not against flesh and blood, as we would be, I would say, outmatched. It is spiritual, and we must depend on God and his gracious provisions in that task. And so this brings us kind of to our last point, and then we'll look at some Q&A, and we'll have a lot of time here. And that is efficacious prayer. 
The act of prayer is an inherent work of dependence upon God. Praying to God, who we cannot see, is a manifestation of walking by faith and not by sight, as Scripture mandates this in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. The prayer of the righteous accomplishes much. And I would say areas of apologetics should be bathed in prayer. When you go out, as you're going out, afterwards, pray for the person you're about to engage in. As you're praying, if you're with someone, ask them to be in constant prayer. After, pray that God would reveal the truth that you made known to them. Because you could, I mean, you could have read Genesis through the book of Revelation. And unless God opens their heart, they're just going to hear words. It is God who needs to open their minds. And so Christians should pray against the work of Satan as he seeks to deceive unbelievers and blind them. Christians should pray for boldness in the work of apologetics. Defending the faith in the face of opposition requires supernatural courage. Christians need prayer for wisdom. We need heavenly insight, and it only comes from God. We see this in James 1, verses 5 through 6. Pray that God would soften their hearts and remove the blindness. Pray that he would penetrate the conscience and pray that the seed of the gospel would take root in their soul. Pray that they would repent and believe and do so having compassion on them. It's not a, you know, again, some people, and I I often do it, you know, you get into the flesh and it's how much you know versus how much I know and, and the people start beating the chest. No, just go back to the truths. We have the sword, let's use it instead of relying back on our own, you know, efforts. And so what I want to do now is get into some Q&A. And I also want to, as I mentioned last week, uh, kind of an acquaintance of mine uh, gave essentially a blog on 70 reasons why he hates Christianity. He's very much against it. Uh, And yet, even in his hatred against it, I'd say he's a pretty nice person. He's a kind person. Now, I believe he hates God, almost admittedly, or he hates Christianity. But nonetheless, I can still talk to him. (laughs) And so he also wrote a blog on, and I want to address this and just kind of capture your thoughts, 21 theories on why I, as an anti-theist, go to church sometimes. And so I want to read these to you and just... Think about, one, when we go to door to door, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Why are we asking the unbeliever to come to church? Should we assume they're an unbeliever and so forth? And so before we do that, I do want to ask uh, some, and if you have any questions, feel free to ask, but what is an example of reasoning apart from the scriptures and reasoning, you might say, from the scriptures? Go ahead, Chris. Mm-hmm. A lot of the truths from Scripture are hard to understand. So they're because they can't grasp the Trinity, they don't want to believe it. Right. You know, so that that's kind of just some of these. Yes, the Bible teaches this, but I can't get it, and I don't want to believe it because it's too hard to understand. So they reject it. You know, they don't submit themselves to whatever the Bible says. You know, that just happens a lot. You know, with a lot of different kind of people. I know sometimes in um, when I've spoken to some Muslims, what they will try and use to sidetrack the idea of the Trinity is they will apply what they call mathematics. And so you got one plus one plus one, you know, you get three, and yet you say, you know, God is one, and so therefore, by default, you're wrong using the idea of mathematics. Now, in the same token, I can use that in multiplication and say one times one times one is still what? You know, one. And so, but what I want to do is not trying to get into a debate, trying to even use that method. I just go to the scriptures and explain it from the scriptures. And so that would be kind of an idea. Uh, and again, trying to use all these other things when we have, again, still the sword. Go ahead. I think uh, the prime example would be appealing to natural theology versus mm-hmm. appealing to uh, specific revelation sure. uh, of the scriptures. For example, uh, you see the sun, therefore, blah, blah, blah. Sure. Or you see uh, the ocean, therefore, blah, blah, blah. Or you see the structure of the eyeball, therefore, blah, blah, blah. So I think that's the main argumentation as far as differences 
Sure. Uh, especially amongst classical approaches, you know, if you're going to have that appeal, even amongst Catholics, apologists, you know, mm -hmm. appealing tradition, to that, uh, tradition, natural theology, outside sources, popes, whatever the case may be, mm -hmm. or even um, just historical proofs that are not necessarily, uh, well, they aren't um, scripture. You know? Sure. So they might appeal to the idea or a principle of scripture, but citing that as the proof isn't necessarily uh, from Scripture. Right, and one of the questions sometimes they employ is, what came first? Right. You know, they would say, well, we know uh, the Son came first before the um, final uh, revelation of the Bible, mm -hmm. and so therefore I'm going to appeal to that because that came first. Mm -hmm. Well, the thing, <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about the Son unless but God revealed it to me. <laughs> right, sure. And so along with that is how would you respond to this if God wants me to know something he will reveal it to me how do you respond to that yeah how do you what do you how do you think we as Christians ought to respond to um, a statement like that when you're out on the street well, go ahead Kim have that sure same <laughs> some of these and that's why I've made it because I've gotten these and so I just want to <laughs> Okay. His holy vessel to proclaim his, the gospel in his word. And that's how, you know, and whether it's through his word, like I've had someone, you know, where I've talked to them about some things that were false and opened the word of God with them, and they still want to turn from it and say, well, if God wants me to know it, he'll reveal it. And I'm like, I'm standing right here. You yeah. Know? And so that's basically, yeah. I mean, that's how I would respond is that, well, God uses different means and you know, whether it's through his word or a, a person, a Christian, um, you know, proclaiming his word. Mm -hmm. that, so. Sure. That's a difficult situation because, I mean, you could have one being more heated and anti-God or so, so sure. anti-God than another. I think maybe walking someone through the idea of what is revelation mm -hmm. and then walking them through how the scripture declares that any revelation that God gives you you might be blinded to it until, you know, God mm -hmm. opens your heart. Sure. You know, you might have to go down that road with them and speak to them some hard truths and then declare the gospel to them so that that effectual call might take place. Okay, good. Um, another question. How do you know that you can know anything? Any thoughts? I'll tell you my thoughts, but any others? Well, I would say one of the reasons why I can know that I can know anything is because Christ declared it. He made uh, several statements. He says, I have written these things that you may know you have eternal life. And so when I declare that I'm a Christian and that ha I have eternal life, my source of authority is based on what he said. And so that there is no higher authority than what he said. And that was just one of the truth claims that he made. He said it about himself. I am the way. I am the truth. So I'm declaring these things. I'm declaring knowledge claims that I can know something because I go back to what he said about it. Go ahead, Emilio. Well, I was just saying the question itself is kind of a catch point too. Sure. I mean, if you say you don't know anything, that is a knowledge claim. Right. <laughs> yeah. How do you know that you don't know anything? Argument, right. right. Um, hey, yes, go ahead, Chris. One thing I maybe kind of goes back to I always found it interesting, like how often Jesus, when he's talking to people, I think especially the Jews, but he always held them accountable for what God had said. He says, Have you not read? Sure, he it is written over and over. Like 12 times, like just did a search on those words, like said it like 12 times in the Gospels. Have you not read? Have you not read? So he held, he holds people accountable to what God has said. You know, people should know, even unbelievers who come into contact with the people of God, that that is the true God. The God that worked with Israel and did all these great things, that is the true God who has spoken. Sure. Going back to if God wants me to know something, He'll reveal it to me. And I think when He reveals it to me, He's stating, "Have you not read?" He's revealing it to them through His Word. Um, I don't know if I want to ask this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. <laughs> go ahead. Sure. Sure. Move on. You mentioned something earlier. I thought was just really important. You mentioned about being in the image of God. Sure. 
and that, and that you, you said that man, unbelievers even, are still in the image of God. Yes, I believe so. You know, my wife just recently, she was reading a book, somebody recommended a book to her, and it was like, um, I forgot who the author was, um, but they were arguing for the fact that like man today is no longer in the image of God because they lost the image of God in the garden. You know what I mean? Okay. So he is no longer in the image of, of God. And we know, of course, I mean, we know different in our church, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so what would be maybe some of the consequences that you can think of of holding that position? Since I mean, since we brought it into our apologetics, you mm-hmm. know what, I mean? what would be some of the consequences of not holding to that position? I just don't want other folks in our church to be exposed to that, and then maybe be under that, you know, that thinking. Right? To me, I, I mean, it, it probably I'd probably have to think through it some more. But a quick response, essentially, would be why in how I treat the person you know in terms of value uh, if I no longer see them in being still in the image of God then I would I'm probably not going to treat them as valuable as I think another human Christian should be treated I may think well why should I treat them any differently than an animal who is not in the image of God you know, why should I have any care, respect? Because, again, we go back to the apologetic task. It says have gentleness and respect for them, and I believe that is because they're still made in the image of God and continue, continue in that image. And so, to me, it's because of God and because of them and, and how he sees them is what, how I would treat them. You know, my, how I treat them would be far different. I don't treat animals or, you know object stuff different I mean I treat it differently so that would be one I think with, with that point um, first of all that guy we didn't read Genesis five <laughs> but uh, where God said the, the shedding of blood you know he, he made it a curse to the man that sheds blood um, but God always ties the image of, of God on man to morality Mm-hmm. And I think it's a constraining grace that God has put upon mankind that we see ourselves in the image of God. We as Christians see that person. And it, I mean, yes, there's still murderers. Yes, there's still that depravity that's there. But there is a restraining grace. I think God uses the image of him upon mankind as a restraining for mankind. Yeah, it's, if they're no longer in the image of God, what are they suppressing then? <clears throat> uh, to me, it wouldn't really make sense. Right. You know, and when he's you, revealing himself well, to them. The, the argumentation would be more of um, evolutionist. That right. I, I, I think you nailed it on the head, Jason, when you said that you would treat that person as not human. Right. I mean, the, really, that's what it means to be human. Is to sure. Be image. You cannot mm-hmm. be human beings without bearing I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, along with that... Um, I would think so, and that's what I'd say. I'd kind of have to talk to them a little bit more. What do they become the image of and so forth? I mean, if they're no longer in that image, I don't, I don't know. I'd have to kind of flesh that out with them. <laughs> um, yeah. What is prayer, and how is your prayer different from an unbeliever who also may pray? I think we know that both unbelievers and believers pray. How is it any different? Any thoughts? One, real quickly, is that the Bible says that the prayer of the righteous availeth much. Well, we would know if someone's not righteous had been given a righteousness from Christ, their prayer is not going to avail much at all, if any. So that would be one difference. Can you think of any other differences? He doesn't regard the prayer of the wicked. Right. I, I would from, yeah. Uh, well, not only that, but it's the abomination. Yeah. Sure. So their prayer, in a sense, what they're saying, they want a prayer, pray to God, receive the benefits of the prayer, and yet will not acknowledge him as they should. And so to me, it's almost a form of idolatry. I want the benefits, but I don't want you. And, and so that would be well, one of the differences. The they're praying for, probably. Yeah, you know. can be, certainly. Um, and along with that, how would you respond to the question of, why do you call them unbelievers if you claim that they know God exists? Is that a contradiction? 
people got to go be, you know, they believe, but they don't know. Here's the difference. I say they do believe God exists, okay? Just like I know the president exists. Whether I like him, love him, dislike him, or any of that is irrelevant. I know he exists. Whether I want him to be president is aside from the matter. I know he exists, okay? Just like people know God exists. Whether they want God ruling over them or not, he still does. And so the difference is they know he exists. But Jesus says to believe on him. And so the difference there is they are not believing what he says about himself. And they are not trusting in him, seeing him as Lord over their life, even though he is. And so that's the difference why the scriptures say that they know him. And yet the same scriptures call them unbelievers. So the unbelief has to do with them not believing on him for salvation. And so that's... That's, I think, a, a big difference there. They're not trusting him and his work. They, to me, are relying on self-righteousness, their own work, uh, to be made right with God. That's good, right? Because it's the difference between saving faith and not saving faith. Like everybody believes that God's there. That's not going to save you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the object of our faith is what makes the biggest difference. People, a lot, unbelievers have faith. It's just a matter of what is their object. You know, their faith is on what they're doing. Um, Now, I have a few other questions, but what I want to do just with the last five minutes that we have, um, I want to quickly go over some theories of why this person says, as an anti-theist, why he still goes to church sometimes. And in looking at these, I'm going to think, how would you respond? I mean, we as a church go door to door, right? And we ask people who we don't know, you know, Uh, to come and hear the word of God, okay? So this being said, this person says, here's why he is an anti-theist, sometimes go to church. Maybe, and he lists them all as maybes, maybe it's because I want to build relationships between Christians and atheists. Maybe it's because church is the natural place to talk to Christians about their religion, Maybe it's because I dislike the Christian viewpoint and I think that the church needs to hear more than one opinion. In talking to a couple people in the church about Christianity after the sermon, after the sermon forwards that, they then had the opportunity to talk about what was said. Maybe it's because I like the music even though I don't like the words. Maybe I'm trying to remind my family and closest friends that I still belong, even though I no longer believe. I am still a member of the same humanity they are. I think this person nails it going back to they are still made in the image of God. Even they realize that calling themselves an, anti, an anti-theist, right? He wants to be accepted. And so maybe I go because I'm curious Different churches have different communities, different ways of looking at the world. And I just want to see another corner of humanity. Maybe it's so that when I talk to Christians, I know I'm speaking to them where they actually are at and not where I think they are at. Maybe I go to make new friends. Maybe it's so that I can find more reasons and ways to deconstruct Christianity, hopefully saving others from the cult. Maybe it's so that I can show people that you don't need to be ashamed going to a church or any house of religion as an open theist. Maybe I think I can encourage, or what? maybe I think my courage will give doubting Christians the freedom to embrace their doubt. Maybe it's because I'm hoping to shake hands with old friends. Maybe it's because I want to show people that I'm open-minded especially since most of the people who knew me as a Christian think that I'm very close-minded towards Christianity these days. Maybe it's because Trish Ramos came to my door. No, it's not there. Um, Maybe it's because I have theories about how the church works and indoctrinates people, and I want to see if these theories actually hold true. Uh, I guess with just one minute left, any thoughts to that? 
Uh, the, he gave, well, 70 was last week. This is just 20. I'm, I don't want to go into all of them, but kind of summarizing his basic idea why he would go sometimes. Go ahead. Well, like online, when you get somebody challenging a Christian on any, any kind of thing that's Christian, they seem to know something about Christianity. Sure. So I would assume they used to be a Christian or they attend church or they listen to sermons or study the Bible so they can have something, you know, like some ammunition to, you know, this is how I can break this down. Right. I mean, he says it, and he says deconstruct it. Yeah. So. Well, I don't have a problem with unbelievers going to church. Sure. Um, but, you know, obviously they're there for, you know, evangelistic purposes. You know, First Corinthians chapter It's like admittedly. <laughs> yeah, well, First Corinthians, you know, that whole episode about charismatic gifts, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. in those passages, like I think it's chapter 14, it assumes an unbeliever will go in and unbelieve. Right. You know what I mean? And, uh, and visit you. You know what I mean? So that what you should be communicating at that point is intelligible, clear, propositional truth in the hopes that God will regenerate them. You know? uh, so I don't have a problem with inviting an unbeliever to church. Yeah, I wouldn't either. You don't change the church for the unbeliever. Right, and I think that goes back to what is the church for? Is it for the believer or unbeliever? Is it for both? To me, I'd say no, it's definitely for the believer those who are more than welcome to invite an unbeliever to hear the truth claims of God's word. So I guess we're at, you want to pray for us, Emilio, as we head out? Father, thank you so much for just the truth that we've heard today, and thank you that we have such a robust Christian worldview that has an answer for all these questions, and uh, Lord, they're all, um, they're all in your word, and they're all in the wisdom and the knowledge of the treasury of Thank you for the class. Thank you for Jason. Thank you for his hard work, his labor, and uh, just serving us.